All right, hey, we've been in the season of Lent, and Lent, again, is this time where Jesus is the center, and that's why people give away or, or sacrifice things during the Lenten season, whether it's meats or sweets or whatever it might be that you're giving up, and it's a way to say, Jesus, you be the center. Now, um, today is actually a special day within the church calendar, because next week, of course, is Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday, which we celebrate the fact that Jesus really lived, that he really died, and he really resurrected from the grave. Now, whether you're a Christian here or not, here's what Christians believe, we believe that that actually happened. And if it actually happened, it changes everything because it changes the way that what we believe about reality and truth and purpose and what all of this human history is for. Now, if that's the case, that's why we'd love for you to, to invite you to come out um, next week. Now, today is Palm Sunday. That's part of Holy Week. Now, Palm Sunday is this day where uh, if, you, if you look, and the passage uh, in John chapter 12 that we just read happens right before Palm Sunday. Before Palm Sunday, there was this belief that Jesus was gonna come as this conquering hero. He was gonna come to deliver the people of Israel from Rome, where they were in captivity. So if you could imagine, so what happened on Palm Sunday is the people, as Jesus makes his entry into Jerusalem, is they wave their palm branches and they say, Hosanna in the highest to this king who's going to deliver us. In other words, there was this belief that Jesus was going to come as this conquering hero. Little did they know that just a week later, Jesus would be dying, crucified on a cross. In fact, some of the people that were saying, but Hosanna in the highest, they would be the same people that would say, crucify him, crucify him. In many ways, Palm Sunday uh, especially in light of what's going to happen on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Palm Sunday is this day where it really points at the fickleness of the human heart, uh, the ways in which we can be so capricious in how we actually follow God. Um, and yet in the story that happens right before Palm Sunday that was read earlier by Bianca, there's this story that actually reveals to us what does it really mean to be all in to follow Jesus. Now, check out how this story goes. Uh, here's what it says. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived. Now, I make that comment where Lazarus lived because if you were here last week, you, you know that in John chapter 11, Jesus actually raises Lazarus from the dead. He's been dead and in the tomb for days and Jesus resurrects him. So if you could imagine now, after this episode, basically this bridge is starting because here Jesus has resurrected Lazarus and now Lazarus is with him um, and a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. Martha, who's one of the sisters of Lazarus, is serving while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Now look, Mary, who's the sister of Martha and Lazarus, look what it says about Mary. Mary took about a pint of pure nard. Now some of you are like, that means nothing to me. Now, but here, the, the writer is actually gonna explain what is this pint of pure nard? an expensive perfume. Later in the text, it's going to reveal that this perfume and this pint of it was actually worth about a year's wages. So if that's the case, this expensive perfume, she poured it on Jesus's feet. Now, back in those days, in that desert kind of climate and region, uh, people walked around in sandals, and these dusty roads were not like these neatly paved areas. Uh, the irrigation systems, as well as the, the ways to get rid of animal dung, like were not nearly as sophisticated as they might be today. And so if you could imagine, the ground upon which people walked was dusty and dirty. And uh, so someone's feet then would be filled with grime and dirt and dust, and it would be smelly and nasty on their sandals. And some of you are like, that's not too different than New York City. Um, 
But if you could imagine, this is how Jesus' feet were. So, so to, to actually wash someone's feet is this debasing kind of act. And yet here Mary is, and here's what she's doing. She's pouring this expensive perfume worth about a year's wages. Now, I checked the median salary in this neighborhood is about $225,000. Uh, so if you could imagine, if you could imagine, I know some of you are like, whoa, good thing I don't live in this neighborhood. But anyhow, uh, 200, now if you could imagine though, there's a perfume that's worth about that amount. And, so, and this one extravagant, almost ridiculous moment, there's this pouring out of this perfume and it's being used to wipe Jesus's dirty, grimy, smelly feet. Not only that, look at what it says. And wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, isn't that stunning? There's this moment where basically she's doing this extravagant, undignified act. Most women during that day did not let down their hair. And yet here this woman is, and she has let down her hair. Mary has let down her hair, poured out this. Honestly, uh, like whenever I, I read this passage, I immediately start thinking, this is kind of ridiculous. It's a bit extravagant. It's undignified. It's so unnecessary. And honestly, for me, I start to think, even monetarily, like, are you serious? Like, that it was worth $225,000? And you would just, in one shot, you would just lose it all? That's not a great ROI on that. And what's crazy is, look at what it says. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. I realized that the way that I was thinking after reading this passage, Judas says the same thing. And a part of me is kind of like, yeah, see, I know Jesus but it was Judas. And look at the explanation that John gives. He says, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. I'm like, oh no. Uh, as a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, it, it's not like what this passage is saying is that, oh yeah, you're, you're, you're not supposed to save and to be prudent with your money and make wise investments because the Proverbs are replete with how we're supposed to steward our wealth and invest and give and save and things like that. But there's something about this in this moment where even the wisdom of the world and the logic that we might have about what is the best return on investment for money and for uh, investments and for assets, even that is debunked in this moment where Mary does this incredibly extravagant and honestly, it looks like a foolish thing. Now, look at what Jesus' response is. He says, leave her alone. Jesus replied, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor with me among you, but you will not always have me. It's like Mary has made this incredible act in this episode that's so extravagant that on the outside, I look, and as someone who claims to follow Jesus, I look at him like, that is wasteful and honestly silly. And yet Jesus is like, leave her alone. He actually validates what she's doing and he, he actually praises it. Now, here's what this passage reveals then, right? Because what Mary is doing is she is extravagant and she is foolish in this. And it's not only Mary, right? So Mary has demonstrated that what it means to follow Jesus is that I will at times 
be someone who is so all in that I will be extravagant and foolish with this too. But it's not only about Mary. Remember we said that Lazarus was in the story? Check out what it says about Lazarus. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to see Jesus and believing in him. Gosh, poor Lazarus. I mean, he just got raised from the dead. He can't catch a break here. (laughs) They're looking to kill him too. What's going on? You see, both in Mary as well as in the story of Lazarus, Lazarus, what we're seeing is that what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is often extravagant and foolish. It requires one to give up all of their dignity, all of their possessions, and to say, I'm all in with you. Now, this is what Mary and Lazarus are revealing. For Lazarus, it's giving up his own life. For Mary, it's doing this ridiculous, undignified, costly kind of act. Following Jesus is often extravagant and foolish. But you see, this pattern, it actually reveals itself throughout the scriptures. Um, Check out this story from 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's when David is welcoming back the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And look what it says. As the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Do you see what's happening? David is leaping and dancing in worship. Look at what it says. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And David said to me, call, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appeared me, when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I will be extravagant and foolish and dance like it's 1999. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. David is demonstrating that this is what following God is like. Sometimes there's a bit of extravagance. Sometimes there's a bit of foolishness. See, but this doesn't only happen in the Old Testament. Check this out. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the church in Corinth, look at what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness. Can I hear you say foolishness? Foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. I mean, do you see what he's saying? The world operates with with this wisdom of the world about power and influence. But the story of a Jewish carpenter who's going to die and upend Rome, which even then Paul did not even know the extent that a Korean-American guy would be standing and preaching on the middle of Manhattan to a group of people from all over about this Jesus fellow. And yet Paul knows that the power of God was always found in this foolish type of story. Look at what he says. Uh, 
Go to the next slide. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And look at what he says. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. That is some powerful stuff. He's basically saying, you see, all the ways in which the world around us tell us what is powerful, what is meaningful, what is purposeful. And he's saying, don't you see the Christian story upends all of that because it talks about the foolishness of all of this, of a lowly carpenter who has come to die, that your salvation would come through his death. Now, look at what it says. And I, I love what Paul is doing here. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. If you look in the history of the early church, in the book of Acts, it says they were unschooled, ordinary people. It's not like Jesus came from Rome, from the halls of power. No, these were unschooled, ordinary people. Now, this is not to say that God doesn't use the rich and the influential because there are other stories of people who are rich and influential who are used by God in extraordinary ways. Instead, look at what Paul is saying. He's saying, many of you were not wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let, a, let the one who boasts, boast in their GPA at an Ivy League school. Let the one who boasts, boast in how they got this really high-paying job out of college, and now they have all this disposable income that they could use to eat at great brunch places and go on fancy trips and all the things like that. Let him who boasts, boast in how many Instagram followers they have and their LinkedIn profiles and where they live. Let him who boasts, let her who boasts, boast in the Lord. Uh, the, the word that's used for foolishness in the Greek, that's used time and time again, and you saw that it was underlined so many times in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's the word moria. We get words like moron from it. You know, I mean, he, he, here's, here's what it's like living in New York, right? We meet people, we meet new people, different social circles at work or where we play. We, we just, we meet people, right? We get to know them hear about them, we ask, like, what do they do for work? Immediately, like, that's one way to kind of gauge where they are in the social spectrum. We ask how long they've been working in that industry. That also gives us a sense of, you know, how, how, how accelerated their career path is. Then we ask them where they live, and based on where they live, right? Manhattan is way up here. Staten Island, not so. No, I'm just kidding, Staten Island. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Staten Island. But right, like, there's this way that we, we, we just basically start to grade people based on where they're Then we find out where they went to school. And then we say goodbye, we go home, and we look them up on LinkedIn or Instagram or whatever social media vehicle of choice. We get a sense of how established or unestablished 
or how upwardly mobile these people are. And this is what we do. Here Paul is, and Paul's basically like, hi, my name is Paul. I'm a moron for Christ. I mean, could you imagine? What if, what if that was the introduction that we all use in our social settings? Hi, my name is Drew. Oh, where'd you go to school? I don't know. I'm just a moron. In fact, high five your neighbor and say, you're a moron. Okay, some of you, some of you had enough social intelligence to know not to do that. Good for you. Uh, others of you, you gave in so quickly, so quickly to that invitation. But what if, I mean, what if, what if that's how we saw ourselves though, as just these morons? Morons for Jesus. Just a bunch of morons. What if that's what our church community was known for? For just, hey, welcome to Hope, just a bunch of morons. You know, there's this way in which, like, when I think about extravagance and foolishness, I think, oh, that's for when I was a teenager. That's when I was in my, tw- I was in my 20s. Passion for God. They'll learn. They'll learn. <laughs> then get older, more mature, become get married and have kids. and just, I'm just wiser now. Or maybe I've just kind of sold a little bit of my soul. And maybe I've lost a little bit of that extravagance and foolishness. That Jesus asks for. There's this passage in the book of Philippians where, where Paul is actually, he, he, he writes out kind of his resume of like why he has reasons to boast. And it's, it, it's how he's learned and how he comes from this family line and how he's got all of these things to boast in. It's like his resume. And check out what he says following this in Philippians 3. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. Other translations call it rubbish. Other translations are even more vulgar about it. Garbage and rubbish. I consider all these things garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through, is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And here's what Paul is basically saying. He's saying, I've done all these things. I've got all these degrees. I've gone to this school and that school. I've got all these things to hang my hat on, and here's what I found. Consider all of that garbage, rubbish, compared to knowing Jesus and being found in him. You know, and I wonder how many of us 
especially in a town like this where we've got money, we've got wealth, we've got smarts, we've got multiple degrees, we've got friend groups, we've got impressive resumes. I don't know if I'd call it garbage. God, I've done all these things for you and for your glory. I mean, these are ways in which I explain it away. And when my life, if I were to evaluate my life and kind of the measure of my faith, it's not one of extravagance and even foolishness. It's one of kind of prim and proper ways of behaving and looking at the world. Uh, you know, Jesus has this interaction with this rich young ruler where the rich young ruler comes to him and he says, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus basically says, sell everything and follow me. And the, the man walks away dejected because he realizes that he can't do that. And so then there's this passage, right, where Jesus basically says this. He says, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, isn't that stunning? Now, this is not to say that rich people can't become people of faith. Because again, the story of scripture, there are considerable amount of people who are influential and rich who follow Jesus. It's just somehow, what wealth does to us is it just makes us less needy because I got my money. I kind of don't need God. I don't need to trust him. I don't need to be extravagant or foolish. That's for other people. It's for Mary, Lazarus, not for me. And if we could put up that list of things like money and wealth or our smarts and our degrees, some of us, we're just so smart. You are so smart. You have multiple degrees or you're gonna get multiple degrees or you should have multiple degrees. In other words, you're way smarter than I am. And the reality is some of us are just so smart. I can kind of do life on my own. Or it's money and wealth. You know, and, I, and when I look at this list, I'm like, these things, actually, God, I don't know if I can call all of these things rubbish. These are things that I cling to and I hold on to. And I talk about how you have empowered me with these things, with my money and my wealth and my smarts and my degrees. My ideology, perhaps, for some of us, whether it's progressivism or it's conservatism, whatever it might be, there's ideologies sometimes that we're like, no, I'm going to hold on to this more than Jesus, or our careers, or our reputation, or our health, or our family. You know, as I was reflecting on my own life, I've just been wrestling with, gosh, God, Am I extravagant and foolish with you? Am I willing to go all in with you? Or is the health and well-being of my family, is that more important to me than anything else? And again, I'm kind of like, I look back, I'm like, ah, oh, this message of extravagance and foolishness and losing my dignity. 
That's for the young adult group that meets on Saturday mornings at the Hub. What if it was for me? What if it was for you? What if it was for all of us? Now, what's beautiful, right? Because Jesus basically says, they're like, oh my goodness. Like, it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And look how the disciples react. Check this out. They say, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Because the way that we understood the way that the world works is that it's only the wealthy who are saved because somehow they're blessed by God. But look at what Jesus says. I mean, Jesus says, looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And you see, the people, whether you're rich or you're poor, when it comes down to it, what it means to follow Jesus is becoming extravagant and foolish, becoming a moron who's willing to say, I don't hang my hat, my sense of worth, my accomplishments, on my accomplishments, my purpose, on my resume or my brag sheet or where I went to college. I consider all of that garbage compared to knowing God and surrendering my life to God. Now again, this isn't to do away with ascending in our careers or our pathways. It's the disposition of the heart by which that's manifest in the way that we live our lives where are are you willing to be extravagant and foolish? Am I willing to be extravagant and foolish? Now, some of you, I know, you're basically like, Drew, I can't believe you're speaking so pointedly to people here in Manhattan this way about what we're supposed to do to somehow earn God's favor. Well, there's actually a little clue here in, in the story of Mary that is much different, and it, you know, it, it can almost like be a pass-by really quickly unless we noticed it. Look at, look at what it says. In the story where Mary takes this year's wages worth of perfume, pours it on Jesus' feet, wipes it with her hair in this extravagant, foolish manner. Jesus replied, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Now, this little clue that Jesus is giving, he's giving the why as to why would Mary do such an extravagant, foolish thing. Now, we don't know all the details about how much Mary knew. We don't know if she knew that a week later that Jesus was gonna be hanging on a cross, crucified, But here's what we do know is that Mary somehow in this act and what Jesus recognizes about her is that Mary had gained enough insight into Jesus and who he was that she knew while everyone else had missed it, somehow she knew that Jesus had come to die, that he was going to be buried one day. And you see, this is what it means then. Mary's response of the perfume, the wiping of the feet with her hair, all of this is not her going forth and saying, Jesus, let me show you all my devotion to you and how much I'm willing to give everything to you so that you might love me. No, it's always been a response. A response to her knowing a Jesus who was willing to go first. A Jesus who was willing to die on her behalf. A Jesus who was willing to give his own life away. 
And it's because Jesus is a God like that. That she's like, whatever extravagance and foolishness this requires, I am all in. You see, the Christian story has always been a story, not of a God who says, give everything to follow me and then maybe I will bless you. No, the Christian story has always been a story of a God who has always gone first. A God who says, I will give my life away for you without demanding anything in return, but purely out of love and compassion and sacrifice for you. And it's this God that Mary has met. And it's because of this kind of love that Mary responds the way she does with extravagance and foolishness. The question is for you and for me, are we willing to let go of our dignity, our health, our degrees, our wealth? Say, Jesus, for you. Tim Keller has this phrase where he says, with Jesus, all you need is need. But most of us don't have it. We don't have it because we're smart, we're young, we're ambitious, we're talented, we went to the best schools, we've got money in the bank. All you need is need. Most of us don't have it. We have our dignity We have our gifts, we have our talent, we have our resumes. And today the invitation for you and for me is will you lose your dignity? Will you become a moron? I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and I realize this message is somewhat of a weird, challenging one because it's a call for each one of us to become morons in a city like this that is built on being sturdy and strong and together and smart and to portray this image like we have everything all together. You know, um, sometimes when we're singing songs, I was telling my kids, you know, sometimes I raise my hands, and they're like, why do you raise your hands? And I said, I, sometimes I raise my hands when I'm going through significant seasons of doubt. And the reason why I do that is because I almost want my body to be reflective of what I want my heart to be, which is not like this super spiritual type of person, but actually someone who's willing to look like a fool. No shade at those of you who raise your hands during worship, but just to raise my hands in this manner of saying, God, you, I just surrender to you. Um, and I want to I invite us, um, you know, one of one of the things that I'll do sometimes as well is I'll just get on my knees. And it's a way for me to actually with my own body 
to have it be reflective. It may not be reflective of my heart, but it's reflective of what I want my heart to be. I want my heart to be broken and humble and the kind of heart that's willing to say, God, yeah, just, I want, I want to believe in you. I want to entrust my life to you, believing that you use foolish things to shame the wise. Not to trust in worldly wisdom, but to trust in you, the God of the universe. To not find my sense of security or hope or purpose in anything but you. And so here's what I would love to do if, if you're down for it and if your health will allow I just want to invite you to get on your knees. To invite you, just get on your knees wherever you are and to say, just even this posture. And again, you don't have to. This is an invitation. Now I realize we look like a bunch of morons. It's this brittle, cold, sloping surface and Drew just asked us to get on our knees. How silly and stupid is this? Welcome to the club. Father, I pray for each one of us. this city continually taunts us that we don't have enough. That we need to be this or that to be somebody in this city. And yet in you, you take foolish things to shame the wise. You tell us that we are worthy because of you. You tell us that we can come with our nothing, our need, and you will honor that. You tell us that we can be extravagant and foolish and morons. And you are enough. And so, Father, I pray that if there be anything that is hindering us from you, that we would not consider rubbish to knowing you whether it is our money, our wealth, whether it is our looks, our health, whether it is our careers, our reputations, whether it is my own dignity, whether it's my own family. Whether it's my worldly wisdom, Father, we're on our knees. It's a sign of surrender to you that you would take all of us. I 
invite us to just continue in this posture of prayer and repentance. May the posture of our hearts and the posture of our prayers be similar to the posture of being on our knees at this point. As we sing together, let's all, let's continue in this posture of prayer. If you need to worship, you can.